but amen. An ugly tie, okay. I think I got a couple of those somewhere. <clears throat> uh, just one other announcement, too. Uh, uh, the signs that we put out for the dedication, if you see one of those, just grab it. Okay, we want to make sure that we clean up the neighborhood. Somebody said that there's one still in a subdivision somewhere in Gooseland, but I don't know where that is. I had one disappear from a subdivision in Gooseland. Maybe they moved it and put it up somewhere else. I don't know. But anyway, if you see one, grab it, please. Uh, Won't you take your Bibles out with me, if you would? Please turn to the gospel according to Luke. I'm going to kind of be bouncing around, but anyway, that's where I'm going to start. Um, Because this morning I wanted to talk a little bit about I don't, well, I don't know, just a bunch of things, but about church life mainly. And um, I, in my studies this week, I, I, for some reason, I came across uh, the terminology that's used in the business world. And uh, it's words that's very familiar to us now and very common to us now, but actually... Um, some of these words have only um, become a part of the business vernacular in the last 30 or 40 years. Words like networking, mentoring, glass ceiling, gatekeepers, things like that. That's familiar terms in the business world, um, but it hasn't always been. And uh, as I was reading that, I thought, you know, that may be new in the business world, but these concepts are thousands of years old because they are biblical concepts. Networking is just finding people that have common interest and connecting them together so that they can help each other. Well, that's what church life is all about. People having common interests, coming together and helping each other, right? Mentoring is actually a new concept. We're familiar with it. We thought it's been around forever, but Mentoring is just basically developing something in someone that's been developed in you. You have experience, you have knowledge, and you pass that on to somebody else uh, by showing them how to do things and so forth. So the more experienced, knowledgeable person just guides and helps a person that is less knowledgeable. It could be a, a younger person or an older person. You know, it's just somebody that has more experience, more knowledge. And they help guide you so that you can learn those things. Well, the Bible's, I mean, that's thousands of years old. That's called discipling. And uh, it, it's just, it was interesting to me when I saw all of that. A gatekeeper is one who monitors or oversees the actions of others. They basically stand at the gate between the person that wants to come in and the person that's inside. Well, we call those secretaries in the church world because, or, or, um, People in, in uh, levels of ministry, they basically stand in the gate between you and a person that wants to see you or talk to you. And uh, if, uh, if it's in the business concept, somebody calls the office, they want to talk to the boss, and they, they determine if the conversation is really something they need to pass on up the line. And so um, we, we have that in the business world. We, uh, people that look out for each other. Is this somebody you need to be exposed to or somebody that I need to kind of, you don't need to be around them right now. And I'm a gatekeeper because there's some people that you probably shouldn't be associating with. The Bible tells us that mark them that cause division among the brethren and avoid them, you know, so we need to be gatekeepers. And so anyway, I was looking at these concepts and I started thinking about church life, you know, how that church is really a community. 
It's a place where we come together, we find common interest, we find a social network. Uh, and it was something that was really, really important throughout history uh, because early on in the establishment of our nation, church life was the life. Everybody went to church in the nation. It was 100% attendance. But as people find new places to find that social networking, the church begins to lose its influence as far as that aspect of our relationship, as having a social network, a place to, of community, a place where we meet. And so church attendance has fallen off in recent years across every denominational board. Uh, in a 2014 Gallup poll in Virginia, only last year in 2014, only 38% of the residents of the state of Virginia even admitted that they ever attended church. You know, that's not regular attenders. That's anybody that ever attended church at all in 2014, 38%. That's extremely low from 100% back in the establishment of our nation to 38%. 47% of the people in our state said they never, ever, ever go to church. The other 15% is unknown about how many of them go to church. And out of that 38%, I, I didn't really find any stats on how many of them are actually regular attenders or members of the church. And so it's really a concern to see this decline in the church, especially when this is something that God commanded us to do. He commanded us to assemble yourselves together. He said, don't forsake the assembling of yourself together as the manner of some is. Because we need that interaction with other people of like precious faith. You know, it's what keeps you strong and it helps you grow. And uh, I don't know, I just feel like if Jesus said, if you say that you love me, why do you not do the things that I say? You know, so to me, it's just something that's very, very important. In fact, it's a priority in my life. It always has been. Um, growing up, I had a, I forget how many years, but we used to get perfect attendance pins, you know, in the church I attended. It was a little shield, you know, it was your first year. And after that, you'd get year number two and little bars that would hang on it. You know, and there's, there's a song a guy wrote about a man. He had a perfect attendance pin and he finally missed a Sunday because he tripped over it and broke his leg. You know, it's, it was a comical song anyway, but it was just very important to me. And Always has been, and so I, I kind of want to talk about some of that and just some, just some basic fundamentals about church life. Um, our, our reason for coming together is because we want to learn about the Lord and we want to ensure our future and our eternity. You know, a, a lawyer asked Jesus, trying to tempt him, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, what do the commandments say to you? He said, well, the commandment says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and body, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus said, do these things and you'll have life. And then he wanted to trick him. He said, well, just exactly who is my neighbor? And so he tells him the story about the Samaritan. He said there was a man leaving from Jerusalem, going down to Jericho, and he fell among thieves. And they stripped him, stripped him of his clothes, left him wounded, and left him for dead. Along comes a priest, sees him, and walks on the other side of the road. Then comes a Levite, 
He walks on the other side of the road. So here's the pastor and the, and the staff has walked on the other side of the road, all right? And then comes a Samaritan. And the Samaritan, he goes over, he pours on wine, he pours on oil, he wraps him up, he takes him, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, he puts him up in a motel, pays his bill, says, when I come back, if he owes any more, put it on my bill, I'll pay it. And Jesus said, now, which one of them was a neighbor to him? He said, the one that showed him mercy. And so that's what church life is about. It's loving each other and caring for each other and understanding that when you're going through something tough, I've been there. You see, the Samaritan, that's just not my sermon, I just jumped a rabbit, but stay with me. The Samaritan understood what he was going through because the Samaritans were rejected people. The Jews didn't like them. They didn't have anything to do with them. If a Samaritan was there, the priest would have walked on the other side of the road. The Levite would have walked on the other side of the road because they had no association with him. So the Samaritan understood what it was like to be rejected, to need help, and nobody offers you help. And so because he understood that, he offered help to this man. How many of you have gone through some difficult times and you needed help? You know, and if nobody else offered you a helping hand, God did. And so we should understand that. And because of that, we should be here to hold each other up. That's a part of the community. It's part of the reason that we come together. You know, I told the story about going to the district council one time, and I was really, really in a low point. And men who had been in there, seasoned men of God, been there for many years, they didn't need to be there. They didn't need to hear any more sermons. But they came because they were committed to being there. And they prayed for me that day at a dinner table. And as a result of that prayer, God moved in my life at that district council and really healed something in me. And the Lord showed me that it was because of their prayer. It was because of their faithfulness. You know, so there's sometimes that you may not need to be here. You've heard this sermon. I mean, good Lord, I've been here preaching for 18 years. I've about preached everything I know two or three times over. And some of you that's been here a while is like, I've heard everything that he knows preached. You know, you don't really need to be here. But the person beside you might really, really need you to be here. Because that's part of why we come. Is to have that networking and that community. So I was thinking about all of that this week. And for, I started thinking and I kept thinking about the 70 that walked away from Jesus. Because I was thinking about the decline in church attendance. And, and I thought, you know, Jesus had this same struggle. And I started thinking about the 70, or maybe even more than that. We don't know exactly how many disciples that he had. But some of them walked away from him. In Luke chapter 9, he's actually coming towards the end of his ministry. It's right before the Passover. He's been ministering now for about three years. And he says in verse 1, Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority. Where did they get the power and authority? Amen. Where did they get it? Jesus gave it to them, all right? They didn't get it anywhere else. They can't go, I got something. No, Jesus gave them power, and he gave them authority over all devils and cure, to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. This is the stuff that we live for right here, all right? Because when we think of church life, sometimes we think of, I've heard the people say this, well, I don't get anything out of it, so I'm not being blessed anymore. Well, it seems like I read somewhere it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Amen? Come on. 
All right? And so, so sometimes we're, we're looking for those, those mountaintop experiences, those goosey bumps and that glory cloud, man, that fun stuff, you know. It's like a drug addict wanting to get high, you know. When he's down, he doesn't feel right. He doesn't feel normal, so he wants to go get high again. Well, there's some spiritual drug addicts in the church, all right? And they're wanting that mountaintop experience all the time. You can't live there. Nobody lives there. When David was talking about, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. That's where we live. In the valley, surrounded by death and destruction. That's the normal. We visit the mountaintops and we live for those moments, but that's not where we live. And so here he's sending his disciples out, man, they've got power that demons are going to listen to them. Somebody's sick, they're going to lay hands on them. They're going to be healed. Man, that's good stuff right there. That's what we live for, the goosey bump revival stuff. Then right after that, he takes them, and uh, when they come back and they're reporting about all the things that they did and they're excited, then he takes them up to a secret place, the Bible says, if you read the rest of Luke 9. And he's there, and the multitude followed him. And after a period of time, he said, well, send them away that they can find food. And he said, no, you feed them. With what? He said, well, you have five loaves and two fishes. Bring it to me. He blesses it, breaks it, hands it to him, and he feeds 5,000 people with created food. Now, this is a pretty good evangelistic outreach, wouldn't you say? We fed about 13 to 1,500 people at the No Fright Fun Night for free. But we didn't create it, amen. We, we cooked it. There's hot dogs and whatever, you know, popcorn and ca- cotton candy. Jesus fed 5,000 for free. So this is a really good evangelist out- evangelistic outreach that he's got going on here. Then after that, he says, Who'd ever, whose people say that I am? They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah, one of the other prophets. He said, well, who do you say that I am? Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Talking about that revelation knowledge. Peter turns right around, and Jesus starts to tell him about he's going to be going to Jerusalem. He's going to be taken prisoner, and they're going to crucify him. And Peter rebukes him. And what does Jesus do? He looks right into the eyes of the man who just got a revelation from God and said, get thee behind me, Satan, for you are an offense unto me. Then Peter, James, and John, he takes them up onto a mountain right after that. And they see a cloud come down and they see Elijah and they see Moses appear. And Peter gets this other great idea. He says, we're going to build three temples here. We're going to build one for Moses and one for Elijah and one for you, Jesus. Then God rebukes him. And he hears a voice saying, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. Right after that, he brings them, uh, they bring a demon-possessed boy to them. And the man says, The demons tear at him, says, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cast him out. And look at what Jesus does. He turns around and looks at his disciples and rebukes them. Says, oh, you of little faith. Why? Because they'd went out bragging about, we're casting out demons, and they come back and report. He's like, 
you of little faith. And then he cast the demon out of this boy. Then he says he turns his eyes toward Jerusalem because it was time for him to ascend. And then he goes by Samaria and he asks to be to lodge in Samaria and Samaritans didn't want him. Then James and John, the sons of thunder, says, you want us to call down fire from heaven like Elijah and consume them? Then Jesus looks at them and says, you have no idea what spirit you are of. And he rebukes them. Being a leader is not a popularity contest. Are you hearing me, church? Sometimes you got to say the hard things. Then at the end of that chapter, men start making excuses of why they cannot follow him. Guy comes and says, I want to follow you, Lord. He said, well, the fox have their dens. Birds of the air have their nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Another one says, I want to follow you, Lord. But first I got to go bury my father. He says, no, let the dead bury the dead. Then another guy comes and says, I want to follow you, but first I've got to go bid farewell to my family. Then he says in verse 62, if you look at it, it says, Jesus said unto them, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, what he is saying is, if you're going to follow me, then follow me. But if you're not, then you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Then he goes into chapter 10, verse 1. It says, after these things, the Lord appointed another 70 also. We don't know how many disciples he had. There may have been hundreds of them there. I don't know. But he picked 70 of them. And he appointed them also and sent them out two by two before his face in every city and place, whether he himself would come. And then they came back and they said this. Said, Jesus, even the demons are subject unto us in your name. And look at what he says to them. Don't rejoice about that. He said, rejoice not that the demons are subject unto you, but rejoice rather that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Because he tells them, he starts off, he said, this, he said, I saw Satan. Cast down from heaven like lightning from the sky. Rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice rather that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. For I have given unto you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Then in John's account, he is teaching about the bread of life during the same time period. He's talking about the manna that came down from heaven. And he said, I am that bread of life. You need to eat of this bread and you will never hunger again. You'll have eternal life. And then he goes on to say, and if you don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will not have eternal life. And it says in John chapter 6, verse 66. It was interesting to me that that number was 666. I don't know if that's just reading something into it, but. It was just interesting that that number fell on that, that, that verse. It says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus, then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art Christ, the son of the living God. And so as I read that, and I'm thinking about just the statistics of church attendance and church life and the, uh, the efforts that Jesus made to, to win the people. He told James and John, I didn't come to destroy man, but I came to save man. And all the things that he did to try to draw people to the saving knowledge that's found in him. And here he is, and the people that were going to be his followers have now walked away. I just wonder if his heart was broken. If he grieved him. Because if we graded Jesus today on, on the scales of success in ministry, he wouldn't have scored very high. After his evangelistic outreach of fe feeding 5,000, many other multitudes, he healed more people than could even be numbered. The book of John says that if, he, if we recorded everything he did, I perceived that there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it. And he did all of those things. And at the end of his ministry, three years going 24-7 in ministry, sometimes staying up all night long in prayer, he had 120 people that was faithful, that was still there following him. 11 people in his ministry team. Three on staff, more or less, James, Peter, James, and John. One of them that was sold out to Satan, Judas Iscariot. And so I thought about that, and the part that really struck me the most was the 70 that walked away from him. Because I don't know, I can't prove this, but I believe that when Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, I think tears were streaming down his face. I don't know how he knew that they, 70, he was going to walk away. Maybe he just knew. Maybe they told him. But when he, he realized that they were walking away, they weren't going to be back, he turned around and looked at his disciple, and he said, will you also go away? And I believe that he was heartbroken. I believe he was tearful and sad to see that because it is, it's, it's heartbreaking to see the statistics. To me as a pastor, you know, of today's uh, you know, the statistics of church attendance today, everywhere. What this tells me is that people are people in every generation. The challenges are the same. The challenges that Jesus have, we have today. A lot of people will start out excited. Man, even the demons are subject, you know. We have some great move of God or some revival or some touch. You get a touch from God and you're, you're pumped, man. You're excited about the things of God. But when he starts talking about eating his flesh, drinking his blood, taking up a cross and following him and those hard sayings, all of a sudden the goosebumps just don't do it for you anymore. You're not on the mountaintop. Now you're down here in the valley where everybody lives. And so the question that we have to ask when all the new and excitement is gone, things are getting hard and going's getting really tough is will I be one of the 70 or one of the faithful few? Father, I just ask this morning, Lord, that you anoint this word, God. Lord, I don't know how many people will hear it. I, I, I just believe this is a word that needs to be broadcasted across this globe, Lord. Because we have a decision to make in this faith walk, Lord. Will, will we break your heart, Lord? Will we be one of those that walk away? 
Lord, I've known many, many people that have walked away over the years. It grieves my heart, Lord, and I know that it grieved your heart to see these men who committed to follow you, Lord. They turned around and walked away. And, Lord, we have to settle that question. Are we going to be one of those that walk away or one of those that faithfully follow you? So, Lord, I pray that you will just quicken truth in our heart today, Lord, revelation and understanding. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. The nature of man... It's the same today as it was then. Satan's nature is also the same. In 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, As an adversary, the devil is a roaring lion, like a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. Satan has a whole host of, uh, of weapons in his arsenal that he can use to try to discourage you, to get you to turn back from following the Lord. Probably the most effective is people are drawn away by temptation and lust. In the book of James, it says, God tempteth no man, but each man is tempted when he is drawn away by and enticed by his own desires and by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it becomes sin. And when sin is conceived, it becomes death. And so one of his greatest weapons is temptation. We become a prisoner to that. We just had a living free seminar yesterday. It's going to be a very vital and effective tool we're going to be using in the church to help people understand you don't have to live in the bondage and prison of sin, of the strongholds and things that you struggle with. And so that's one of the weapons that he, he uses. That's one reason that church is so important that we have that networking and that community to keep each other strong and encourage each other. And when we see somebody stumbling, to kind of lift them up and help them to not make the same mistakes that they see other people make so that they don't walk away from God. Another weapon that he uses very often is offense. People become offended. And, and it's, especially in the society today, it seems like people are so thin-skinned, my goodness, it's like you, you have to be so delicate in how you talk to people and how you treat people and, and uh, everything. It, even in the media, I mean, everything in the world today is like, that offends me. Can't put up a Christmas tree. Can't put up a nativity scene. Can't say Merry Christmas. That's offensive to me. Everything offends people. Most thin-skinned society I've ever seen or even read or known about in history. Amen? Is it just me or is that true? It's one of the weapons of the enemy, offending people. Somebody said something to me. Or they didn't say something to me. Or they left me out and I feel overlooked. I feel rejected. What I found is people that are wounded often wound other people. Hurt people hurt people. You know, so we need the church. We need the family to help heal one another so that we're not wounded people walking around wounding other people. Another weapon that Satan uses is to discourage you. God doesn't meet your expectation in some way. Or other people don't meet your expectation in some way. And so you become depressed and discouraged. Talked about that last Sunday, depression. Elijah was prone to depression. Jonah, Job, a lot of people. These 70 were disillusioned somehow about what following Jesus was supposed to be about. They thought it was like being on a drug high all the time. We're going to cast out demons and heal people all the time. And he said, no, there's some sacrifice involved. 
I read the commentaries about that when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're saying, well, they didn't understand what he was saying. He was talking about cannibalism. I'm like, what are you? <laughs> they knew exactly what he was talking about. When you partook of the, of the sacrifice that had been offered to something, you're identifying yourself with that idol. They understood the whole concept of eating flesh and drinking blood. They did it all the time in the pagan world. And they understood what he was saying is, you're going to have to sacrifice if you follow me. And they said, this is a hard saying. Who can do that? And they walked away. And so sometimes they get disillusioned about what God is expecting. And Satan will, will, because of your discouragement, cause you to walk away from following the Lord. Another very effective tool he has is overloading you with non-essential busyness. Now, there's nothing wrong with being busy. I am a busy person. Jeannie and I was talking about this today. People say, I'm bored. I have never said that a day in my life. I have never been bored. When I get up in the morning, I can look in any direction, and I can find 50 things in every direction to do. I am a busy person. But is it non-essential busyness? You see, that's what Satan will do. He will get you so busy doing things that do not matter just so he can wear you out. We need to be busy. Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. Jesus was a busy man. He was on the go all the time. But non-essential busyness will wear you out on things that really don't matter. Business is B-U-S-Y, being under Satan's yoke. It's a very effective tool. You get so busy and so wore out, you have time for everything, but there's no time left for the Lord. So you walk away. Another effective tool is he distracts you with good things. They're good things. You say, well, I'm busy, but they're things. I, I mean, I'm doing something for my spouse. I got a honey-do list that's five years long, brother. <laughs> building this church and I'm, I'm, I'm catching up. Hallelujah. That's important stuff, you know, but if it takes me away from doing my duty as a pastor, as a child of God, it becomes non-essential as good as that is. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's good things doing something for your kids. You know, some people, they, I mean, soccer and baseball and this and that is priority on their list. Church attendance which Jesus commanded us to do, somehow gets down here. Non-essential things, distracted with good things. There's nothing wrong with taking your kid to a ball game. Hey, man, come on. But when it becomes a distraction away from the things of God, it can be a bad thing. None of these things might catch you, you know, when you go down that list and anything else that you can add to that is like, you know, Satan's tried those things with me, but that doesn't get me. He's got another one that he pulls out and uses on people that is so locked into God, man. He's got a tool. He's got a, a weapon for you, too. Because when Jesus ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit. And it presented a whole new and unique problem. Because when Satan has tried this and he's tried that, he's tried to tempt you or offend you or distract you or discourage you and it didn't work, what he will do 
is make you super spiritual. Super spiritual. And that doesn't sound like a bad thing. And it is not. Unless it's out of order and it's out of balance. Because to be spiritually, to be super spiritual, first of all, you've got to be very spiritually minded. Now, a lot of people walk away from God. They're not spiritually minded people. They're tempted or they're offended. And the 70 not, wasn't necessarily spiritually minded people. You know, they were offended because they were disillusioned. They were discouraged. And so not everybody is spiritually minded, but people, some people are locked into God, brother. They are very, very spiritually minded. And they get this concept that church life has got to be a party. It's got to be a revival, man. It's got to be mountaintop goosebump all the time. The problem is, if I'm on a mountaintop all the time, I can't relate to you living in the valley and you can't relate to me. The real deal, if I can tell you, is we all live in the valley. It's where we live. When David is talking in the 23rd Psalms, he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, that's where he walked. It's where he lived. It's where the lions would hide in the brush and try to ambush him because it's where life was. The things grew there. It's where the water source was. It's where we live. We visit the mountaintop. But people that are so locked into God, they get this concept that I'm supposed to be on a higher plane all the time. And they get super spiritual on you because they're very, very spiritually minded. And they don't think of that as being a pitfall used by the enemy. Now, being spiritually minded just simply means learning and embracing the things of the Holy Spirit. Now, in my own personal life, I grew up around people that love the Lord. Christian people. They were very committed to the things of God. They embraced the gospel message. Were very faithful in winning the loss through the gospel message. But there was something missing. And in 1974, I got around spirit-filled people for the first time in my life, and I instantly saw there is something they have that I do not have. And I began to desire that. I wanted that. And I found that. And as I did, I began to learn about the Holy Spirit on a level I'd never learned before. I began to learn about the gifts of the Spirit and how they operated and begin to pursue those things. Now, when I look at the biblical example of this, there was no church on planet Earth more spiritually minded than the church at Corinth. Those people were hungry for God. They wanted to be that mountaintop, drug-high on fire, goosebump, revival party people all the time. They were really hungry for God. Spiritually minded people. Satan couldn't tempt them. With, well, he did tempt some of them with a lot of different things. But there were some. He couldn't get them any other way. So he made them super spiritual. And it became their downfall. Their pitfall. The problem with the church at Corinth is like many people that I have known. They embraced the things of the spirit. But they didn't understand the things of the Spirit. It's kind of like a heathen when he came to Jesus Christ and became a Christian. And he's really, really enthusiastic 
I compare it to this. He's got a truckload of zeal for God and a thimble full of understanding. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. People ought to be excited about the things of God. Amen. Have you ever seen somebody when they first get saved, man, they are so, they've got zeal for God. They have no idea what to do with it. And man, they're kind of do all kinds of stuff. They just have, don't, don't have the wisdom. They don't have the understanding. This is a good thing now. I'm not condemning that. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged that. I want to see people excited about the things of God. It's like one guy, he got saved, man, and he's doing this and doing that. And the deacon came up to him and says, it's all right, son. One day you'll be like the rest of us. He went to the pastor. He said, pastor, man, I'm so excited about the things of God. The deacon told me, he said, one day I'm going to be like him. He said, I don't want to be like him. Pastor said, that's all right, son. I don't either. So we don't want to throw water on that or discourage that. It's a good thing to have zeal. But zeal is all right. And spiritual desire and spiritual hunger is good and it's all right. As long as that person will, very big word here, submit. That person learns how to submit. Because sometimes we get this spiritual, I'm, I'm more hungry for God than you. It becomes obvious I'm more, I'm plugged into God and I'm growing spiritually and, and I don't want to be like this guy who never does anything, this deacon who's telling me I'm going to be like him because I'm on a different level than him. And the next thing you know, I've got a greater knowledge. I've got a greater revelation. I know more. I'm living on a higher level. And we get this spiritual arrogance about us. Spiritual pride because we are Pentecostal. We've got the goods we got the Holy Ghost and the gifts of the Spirit. Amen? Come on. we got the words of knowledge and the words of wisdom, healing and prophecy and tongues and interpretation. We have got it. We can also get a lot of spiritual arrogance with that, too. We become super spiritual. We try to live on the mountaintop, and nobody lives there. So we have to learn to submit. First of all, to submit to the authority of God's Word. When does, God, when does spiritual discernment or spiritual understanding supersede God's word? The answer to that question is never. Nothing supersedes the word of God, especially revelation. When John Lazarus was here a few weeks ago, all right, how many was here for the service with John Lazarus? He began to prophesy over people. My job as the shepherd and protector of this flock was to make sure that what he was doing was not extra biblical. And I was listening very carefully to what he was prophesying. I didn't interfere. I'm just, because the Bible teaches in the book of Corinthians, when somebody prophesies that the others are to stand by and judge what is being prophesied. And so I was listening to make sure that nothing he said was extra biblical. In other words, he wasn't saying something contrary to the scripture. And I didn't hear him say anything. And I got up and made that statement. Nothing that he said was extra biblical. Because people go into error when they get super spiritual. And all of a sudden they've got a revelation that nobody else has. And it supersedes the word of God. And then they become a sectarian. Sectarian just means a person that he, he departs from the main line established biblical truth to establish a sect. Such as the Jehovah Witnesses, for example. When Charles Taze Russell got a revelation from, well, supposedly from God, and, uh, and 
developed a whole new way of practicing Christianity that tried to teach that Jesus was not really God, that he was Michael the archangel, and all these extra biblical revelations that are not found in the word of God. In fact, they're contrary to the word of God. It's how the Mormon religion began. When Joseph Smith was supposedly visited by Moroni the, Moroni the angel and he led him to a place where he found golden tablets and a pair of supernatural spectacles that when he put them on, he could read them and translate them into the Book of Mormon. Oh, sure. Nobody's ever seen those tablets, of course, except Joseph Smith. And everything that he wrote in the Book of Mormon is extra biblical. Why? Because he became super spiritual. He lived on a higher level. He knew something nobody else knew. Can you see how this is a pitfall, church? Are you listening to me? Lately, there's been a move that is, it's trying to find its way back into the church world. And I've got my eye on it like a hawk, brother. Because I've been around long enough now to know some of these things. I've actually been caught up in some of these things, realized that they were in error, repented of them, and got out of it. Amen? So I know it, brother, when I see it. And it's a move known as the Latter-day Reign or the Manifestation of the Sons of God movement. Brother Walter, are you familiar with that movement? Latter-day Saint, uh, Latter-day Reign movement? It was back in the 60s and 70s, manifest sons of God. They get it out of Romans chapter 8. It says the earth groans in expectation, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. But if you read that, it's a millennial scripture. We're going to be in our glorified body and the sons of God will be manifested in the millennial reign. But they teach that's already happened. We are now in our glorified body. Therefore, they can impart gifts to you. They can impart power to you. And they use the scripture where the apostles laid hands on Timothy and gave him gifts and that as their go-to. Well, we can impart these things to you. And it's extra biblical revelation. And it's trying to resurface. Only this time it's got a blend of Eastern mysticism and the shepherding movement all poured into one. And it's demonic, brother. I'm telling you right to its core. And I'm watching it very closely. And I'm here to protect you from that. It's not coming in here, brother. Yeah, amen. Come on, you hear me? That's a shepherd's job is to protect the sheep. If I see a wolf out there wandering around, he's not coming in here. Because shepherds kill wolves. That's what I said. Well, Jesus, man, he, he went square on with some situations that wasn't popular. And if you're not willing to do that, you don't need to be pastoring. Because you got to sometimes do the hard things and people don't really... Appreciate that sometimes. But the faithful few will. Because even though I rebuked Peter and those guys, they didn't leave him. So you got to submit to the authority of God's word, but you also got to submit to God's delegated authority. It's always found in a flawed human vessel. Because you can't submit to one without the other. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. If you show me a super spiritual Christian that is not submitted to the five-fold apostolic pattern of ministry, I will show you somebody that's in rebellion and out of the order of God. They've walked away from God trying to walk to God. 
It's a, it's a weapon of the enemy to deceive them in thinking, you know more than the pastor. You know more than the church board. You know more than all the biblical teachers in the church because you've got a higher revelation. And suddenly you can do it better, you can do it bigger, and you walk away from God while you think you're walking to God and you're in deception because you're in rebellion you're not submitted. Submission is a huge thing in the Bible. Amen? Are you still with me? Say amen. Do we need to do like we did yesterday and get up and do the glory dance to wake you up? <laughs> you remember doing that yesterday? I'm not big into that kind of stuff. Don't make me look ridiculous, you know. They had to stand up and you raise your hand, touch your shoulder, touch your head, and wiggle your hand doing a circle. Okay. I did it then. I didn't do it yesterday. I was rebellion. I didn't submit. Second Timothy 3, I'm going to close with this in a minute. I'm about to close almost. Second Timothy 3 said, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce and despisers of those who are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now, verse 5 is what nails this thing. Having a form of godliness. And when I saw that, I'm like, he's not describing the world. He's describing people that are spiritually minded. They're trying to put on that they are godly. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thou. From such turn away. For of this sword are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sin, led away with diverse lust. They're ever learning. In other words, they're studying the word. They're ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Now get this in verse 8. Now, as Janies and Jambres withstood Moses, what are they doing? They're, with, they're withstanding the delegated authority that God has put on earth over them. Moses is the man that God has chosen to lead them. And they're standing in opposition to him. Are you seeing this? Why? Because they know more than him. They're super spiritual. They're withstanding him. So do these resist the truth. Men of corrupt mind, the reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifested unto all men as theirs was. In other words, when you play Satan's game, he's going to destroy you every time. Verse 10 says, But thou, because there's two groups of people here, he's talking about those that are super spiritual, they've fallen into this pitfall. They're withstanding the delegated authority of God. He says in verse 10, but thou, this would be the faithful few group, has fully known, what does it say? My doctrine. Who's talking? The apostle Paul. You've known my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, and persecution. In other words, he's saying, you've examined my life. You've known what I've taught you. You've got this to compare with, and he says in verse, uh, verse 13, he says, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. They'll be deceived and they're, they're going to deceive other people. He says, but thou continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and be assured of, and of whom thou hast learned them because they've learned them from the fivefold ministry gift. So super spiritual 
people, they're not necessarily attempted or offended or distracted or discouraged. They fall into another pitfall. So you have that group and you have the faithful few group. But the biggest danger of super spiritual, I call them rebels because they're in rebellion, is that they, they breed inferiority. Because when you're super spiritual, you think, they really need me. I've got a lot to offer. I've got all this knowledge and all this wisdom and all this insight and all this spiritual understanding. They need me. And when you get around some of those people, you feel like, man, I can't do that. I'm not like them. Boy, I wish I knew God on that level. I wish I heard God on that level. I wish I had that kind of revelation. I wish I could prophesy. I wish I had words of knowledge. I wish I had words of wisdom. And you feel inferior. You see how that works? It breeds that in you. In the church of Corinth, they were dealing with that. That's why he had to write in chapter 12, for as the body is one and hath many members, and all members of that one body being many are one body, so is Christ. Look this way and listen. There is no big me and little you in Christ. That's a good place to say amen right there. There is no big me and little you. The ground is leveled at the cross of Christ. And if somebody's making you feel inferior, you have no right to feel because the body is important. Every single part of the body is important. And he goes on to talk about that. The eye can't say to the foot, I have no knee of you, the ear to the hand, and et cetera, and so forth, the head, because they're all part of the body. It doesn't matter if you're the foot, if you're the eye, if you're the head, if you're the hand, if you're the ear, if you're the pinky finger or the pinky toe, you're part of the body, amen? And you're important. And brother, if one part hurts, you don't believe it, go slam your pinky finger with a hammer. You'll find out how, how important that thing is, brother. Amen. Come on. If it's hurting, brother, everything hurts. I started to say something, but I say that. Hemorrhoids. No, I don't say that. It's a part of the body, brother. We sometimes say. You say they're in the body of Christ? Yeah, armpits and they don't hang out. The, arm, the nose and the armpit don't hang out together, but they are a part of the body, right? <laughs> and we need them. But unlike the seventh, that it went back and walked no more, the super spiritual thought they were pressing into God. They don't think they're walking back. They think they're pressing into God, but they're deceived because they will not submit. God revealed this when he when he's dealing with Peter, when he tells Peter, he says, who do men say I am? You're Christ, man. You're the son of the living God. What is he doing? Simon, you're blessed. Because nobody here revealed that to you. You just got a revelation from God. Peter's Now Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me. Oh, no, no. I got, a great, I got a higher understanding here, Jesus. I got a greater revelation. You're not going to do that. What does he do? Peter, he looks him right in the eye and says, Satan, get thee behind me, for you're an offense unto me. You remember when the, when the 70 came back? 
what he said to them? They said, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Without mixing words, he said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning from the sky. What is he saying? I saw somebody else just like that that was lifted up in pride. Are you hearing me? I saw Satan cast from heaven because of his pride. And I have given unto you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions. Are you hearing this, church? The disciples are big, man. They're on the mountaintop. They got the, the, the goosey bumps going on. He's like, just, be, just settle down. And you need to understand that the power that you got, I gave that to you. To tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. But notwithstanding, in this do not glory. Don't be strutting around with your super spiritual. Look at what we're doing, man. We're casting out devils. We're healing the sick and we're whoo, getting revelation. We're doing this. He said, don't glory in that. That's what Satan did. Do you see how this is a pitfall? But rather rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Every person in here that is born again has got the same thing to glory over. There is no big me and little you. Are you hearing me, church? And it is a, it's a, a weapon of the enemy that he slips into Pentecostal churches especially. Our goal here is to work with you to see measurable, positive transformation take place in your life. And I watch that happen sometimes. And I see people grow and suddenly they begin to realize, I can hear from God. God can use me. But if, the, if you get to a point where you fail to bring that under submission, you are a target of the enemy's deception. And you really, really better be careful with that. I'm not trying to control you. Understand, if you don't think I am the man that has the spiritual authority that God has ordained and called here, then fire me and call the right man, but submit to him when he gets here. Are you hearing me, church? It's not a control thing. It's a biblical thing to protect the sheep from the tactics of the enemy. All right? For the weapons, he's, he's got strategies and tactics. And God will reveal them to us, and we see them very clearly. So we want to be sure that we don't fall prey to that. So he deals with that pride. When, when Peter and, and James and John, they're going up on the mountain to see the mountain of transfiguration. Peter, super spiritual, we're going to build this temple. He's like, then God rebukes him. Then James and John, you know, we've been up on the mountain, man. The other, the other guys, they didn't go. I've got experiences in God that nobody else has got. Man, I saw Moses. I saw Elijah. I saw the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. I know something you don't know. Right? Then they're going in there. Samaria says, we're not going to let Jesus come in here. It's like, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? Why? Spiritual pride. Super spiritual. And what he says is, you have no idea what spirit you're on. You've fallen into Satan's trap and you don't even know it. Now, church, there's nothing wrong with being spiritually minded and being super spiritual. In fact, we ought to be super spiritual. We should hunger to, for the spirit, spiritual things of God. We desire spiritual gifts. 
But he told the church at Corinth because everything was out of order. It was chaotic. And he says, it's all right. And he, he rebuked them. And what we need to do with people when they get spiritual, super spiritual on you is you need to just bring them back down to earth. Because that's what Paul did to the church at Corinth. He gave them instruction and coaching of how this should be done. And this is the, this is the crux of it all. He said, let everything be done decently and in order. God has an order. And we are to operate in that order. And so being spiritual, super spiritual is not something that I discourage. In fact, I want people to be spiritually minded. Pursue spiritual things. But we need to understand that in America today, and maybe around the world, I don't know. I haven't really looked at the stats globally. But in America, people's understanding and their, their, their need and their understanding their need for community and for networking and coming together in the church, that's, you need that. Church, we need each other. I need you in my life. And you need me in your life to help you on this journey. So that we have eternal life. And Satan is working like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's wanting to get you like the 70 to turn around and walk away from God. And whether he draws you through temptation, to sin, to discouragement, distraction, busyness, or through being super spiritual. He's after you. Amen? He's after you. So the question we need to ask this morning, each person ought to ask, is there anything in my life more important than following Jesus? Because he said for many, that time, many of the disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus asked the 12, and I believe he's asking you and I, will you also go away? A lot of empty chairs in here this morning. They used to have people sitting in them. Are you hearing me, church? Now, I have to tell you, when I was pondering on this this week, I was fighting back tears because it was as if I could feel the pain that Jesus had in his voice when he said, will you also go away? And so our question is, will we be among the 70? Be among the faithful few, because I've seen many, many, many people choose many, many, many things above following the Lord. Simon Peter in answer said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art to Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. I'm through yelling at you. How many of you know it's really, really easy to be deceived by the enemy? In the, uh, you can stand to your feet if you would, please. In the Living Free seminar that we had yesterday, it was talking about people that have life-controlling issues. It's not just drugs. It's a lot of different things that control your life. They're issues. 
And one thing that they pointed out is most people that have life controlling issues don't know that they're being controlled by that. Everybody else can see it, but they're blinded to it. And part of the process of the living free thing is having a group come together and just talk about things. And as they talk, it surfaces and they become, they come to a point where they realize, man, I got this problem. Because part of being set free, the first step of being set free is realizing you have something that you need to be freed from. <laughs> Amen. It's hard to set anybody free when they don't realize that they're in bondage or in prison, you know. That's why it's so important that we have other believers around us because we see your problem. Amen? You see my problem. The things that I'm blinded to, you can see them clearly. And so that's why it's so important that we have that networking, that community, so that you can help me see the things I can't see and so that we can bring them to the foot of Jesus and the whole deal with the living free. And because the reason living free is so big is because it's right here. I mean, it's all about this. It's helping people see that's what repentance and being born again is all about. You know, uh, Ray Comfort does a really good job on that on a message called Hell's Best Kept Secret. It's like going and telling people you're a sinner and you need to be saved when they don't realize that they're a sinner. It's like telling a guy he's sick and he needs a cure when he don't realize he's got the illness. And so what Ray Comfort says you do is you take the law and you show them. Paul said the law was the schoolmaster that brought me to grace. I didn't know what sin was but by the law. And so you take the law and you show them you're a liar, you're a thief, you're a blasphemer, you're an adulterer at your heart by showing them that you've told a lie, you stole things, right? Everybody in here has done that, correct? And so what he is doing is he's helping them see that they've got a problem. And church, and I've beaten the, the horse is dead. I'm going to get off of it in a minute. But we, we need each other for that reason. Because there's things that you're going to go through. You're going to be completely blinded to it. But you need people that love you, that really do love you. And church, we really do need to love each other. Right? With that agape love. That unconditional love. And that they care about you. To come alongside of you and say, you know what? I want to see you to be a whole, complete person. Need to work on this. Part of that living free was talking about loving confrontation. We don't like confrontation. But somebody really loves you, they really, really love you, they're going to tell you the truth. Even if it makes you mad at them. Amen. And I love you. That's why I tell you the truth. Even if it makes you mad at me. I hope you're not mad at me. Are you mad at me this morning? Please say you don't mad at me. Because I got thin skin, you know. It hurts if you get mad at me. Because I am a person that likes to be liked, you know. I'm non-confrontational by nature. But we have a duty to tell people the truth. Because the truth is what shall make you free. Amen. So we need each other, right? So are you going to be one of the faithful few? I hope you will be.
and I just wanted to encourage you there and just kind of show you. The Apostle Paul, he told the church at Ephesus, he said, I cease not to warn you night and day for three years that after my departure, grievous wolves shall come in devouring the flock. And even among yourself, disciples shall rise up. Oh, people will rise up to drawing disciples unto himself. What he was doing is he was like, I see the danger and I'm warning you night and day, night and day for three solid years. You know why Paul didn't warn the church of Ephesus four or five years? Because he wasn't there four or five years. He was there for three. And he ceased not to warn them night and day. That's what shepherds do. I see these dangers out there. They're wolves. They're trying to get you discouragement and temptation, all that, even super spiritualness. So I came this morning to warn you. Amen. Now you know. How many of you committed to Jesus? You're going to follow him all the days of your life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. Lord, we, we live in the valley. I know, God. And it's a hard place to live sometimes, God. Sometimes we get discouraged there and disillusioned, Lord. Sometimes we're tempted and we're drawn there because that's where death is at. It's all around us. And yea, though I walk through that valley... And the shadows of death is all around me. I don't have to fear that because, God, I know you are with me. How are you with me? Lord, you're with me in my heart. You're with me in my thoughts and my mind. But, God, you're also with me through the body of Christ. You said the rod and the staff, they comfort me. Lord, in the age and the day that we live in, the rod is the correction, Lord, that comes through other believers, Lord. Helping to correct us. The staff is the guiding rod that directs us in the way we should go. In the hand of other believers. Lord, help us to see these things and to understand these things. And see the importance, God, of church life and community life, Lord. And being networked together, God. And helping each other. Lord, I pray that our church will be strong, Lord. God, it would be awesome if our church was full, if it was packed. But Lord, I want a healthy church regardless of how many people we have. If we have few or many, God, I want the church to be healthy and strong, God. To be knitted together with love and compassion and concern and genuine care for one another. So Lord, I pray that you just build the body of Christ here, Lord. Healthy, strong, Lord, in your order. I pray this in Jesus' name. Now, Lord, if there's a person here today, God, and their heart's not right with you, Father, may they, maybe they've been caught up in some of these things, Lord. They've been discouraged, God. They've been, Lord, they've been slipping around doing things they know is wrong, God. They've fallen to temptation, God. They're overworked, God. They're just too busy, Lord. I pray that you help them find their way back to you, God. Find the peace, the joy, the contentment that comes with you, God, in submitting to you totally. In Jesus' name. Now, Lord, as we leave this place, Lord, I pray that you would just bless our day. Bless the things that we're doing through the rest of our day, God. We thank you for the food that we're about to share together. God, I pray your blessing over that. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our bodies from it. Lord, most of all, bless our fellowship, Lord. I pray, God, that you would just help people to connect today, Lord, to um, find each other, Lord, and people that will strengthen one another. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you, church. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you are blessed and encouraged by it. 
Central Virginia Assembly of God is located on 5052 Cross County Road, Mineral Virginia, 23117. If you would like more information about the church, visit us at centralvaag.org or call 804-514-2413. We would love to hear from you. God bless.